Welcome. Today we're going to talk about pain management in opioids, specifically in geriatric uh, patient population. Uh, my name is John Swiggle. I'm a pharmacist up at a family medicine residency program in Mason City at Mercy, and uh, my interest in uh, this area comes from my working with hospice, uh, local hospice up in Mason City, as well as with the Palliative Medicine Fellowship up there. First of all, I want to disclose a uh, disclosure statement. I, I have really nothing to disclose, so um, I want to make sure that everyone listening to this understands that, and uh, I have no official ties to any uh, drug companies or anything else. The objectives for today, uh, number one is to identify good candidates for opioid use, particularly with the geriatric patient population. Second is to understand the advantages and disadvantages of commonly used opioids. Third, be able to initiate and adjust opioid doses based on response to therapy. And then finally, recognize and address potential opioid adverse effects. So first off, I'd like to throw out some general goals, uh, what we're doing with pain management in this particular patient population, or any patient population for that matter. The ultimate goal that we're trying to do is to reduce suffering. And, and suffering is... Uh, part or an endpoint of pain. Uh, it's an endpoint of many different uh, disease states, but uh, particularly with pain, we're trying to help reduce this as much as we can. And it's not just the patient. Uh, many people are involved with this. We tend to target the patient because that's who we're treating or that is who we're uh, focusing the efforts on. But certainly family can also be suffering along with the patient. If you have a a caregiver, for example, that uh, is taking care of a loved one and they are unable to uh, uh, the patient, for example, has a lot of pain, and the caregiver kind of feels uh, some grief because of that, and even healthcare providers. Uh, many times there are, are physicians, for example, who try to treat a patient. They want to see them do well, and if they're not doing the, as well as they had hoped, then that also can, can be involved with it. Zero pain, um, great idea. I think zero pain is, is a great goal to have, but it may not be realistic. Uh, and what I try to tell people is my main goal in, in recommending medications is to give you a medication to either help you reduce the suffering or uh, make the pain at least so it's somewhat tolerable and that they can do their activities of daily living. Know your medications. Know the limitations to the medications. One size does not fit all. This is particularly true with opioids. Uh, the appropriate use of medications, and we'll talk more about that later. And then general pharmacy rules, this really pertains to boards of pharmacy, uh, re, uh, pertains to prescriptions and, and how they're handled with the uh, electronic medical records nowadays and the e-prescribing, where are we at as far as what the, the board of pharmacy and uh, the state of Iowa, what pharmacies actually can do in receiving electronic scripts. Uh, those are all uh, things that certainly should be kept in, in mind. I throw this slide in there. I know this is a pain talk predominantly, but it's a, really a general slide on simplification of medication regimens. The first part is avoid polypharmacy. Uh, this is a whole other lecture I've given uh, on this topic, and, and yeah, on paper it sounds great, avoiding polypharmacy or multiple medications. I will tell you, though, that the number of medications that is on board is more important for adverse drug reactions and drug interactions than anything else. And in the elderly population, they may, may be more sensitive to the adverse drug reactions. And quite honestly, they could be sensitive to the effects of drug interactions. So avoidance of polypharmacy is possible, and it's something that certainly is encouraged. Avoid complicated regimens. This is particularly true if you have 
lots of medications on board. Uh, with pain management, certainly we like to try and simplify things if we can. It doesn't make any sense for somebody to be on uh, a medication four or five times a day if we can get by using it uh, once or twice a day. Treat based on prognosis. This is uh, really more applicable to a talk that I'll give in December in this series. Uh, but what we're asking for here is, is, is the benefit of the medication that you're giving realized, or when do you expect to see this benefit based on the prognosis of the patient? Uh, an example with opioids, of course, is that we would like to see a benefit earlier uh, rather than waiting, and certainly that can be a realistic benefit uh, seen uh, uh, with those medications. And of course, if possible, use one agent to treat multiple conditions, and I realize that this is not always a possibility, but uh, certainly if you can do that, then, then we certainly encourage it. Various etiologies for pain, a uh, very important slide to understand. Uh, I mentioned that one medication or one size does not fit all. Uh, the different types out there for pain as far as etiologies, everyone's familiar with the, the physiologic, and I put two broad categories that people tend to think about with nociceptive uh, being one and neuropathic being the other. And yes, we have medications that we can use that target both of those. However, you need to keep in mind emotional. Uh, this could be anxiety. It could be depression, it could be anger, but emotional distress can feed into uh, pain and it can emulate and come out as pain. Social uh, aspects. There could be interpersonal issues, family, there may be a long distant relative that sort of been ousted from the family and, and they come back perhaps at the end of life and they cause a lot of unrest. Uh, perhaps there is a situation where the family member is, is, is trying to make amends with the patient and the patient's struggling with that and they can come out as, a, as, as pain. Loneliness is something else that can be a social issue that, that can impact pain as well as financial barriers. And finally, spiritual. Uh, Non-acceptance, abandonment. Uh, there are people that feel that they're paying for previous transgressions. They, they did something when they were younger and now later in life they're, they're, they're suffering pain and so they feel that, that if they go through this painful episode that there will be less transgressions that they have to pay for as they die. I, I will highlight though that there are two particular disciplines that can help with the last two, the social and spiritual. Uh, social workers in particular are wonderful at obviously social aspects uh, and spiritual care. So ministerial type staff and, and people along those lines are, are wonderful in helping with the spiritual issues. Uh, and they're all part of the healthcare team that can help us in, in, in treating pain. Pain in the elderly, I think it's, it's known that it's underreported and also undertreated. Uh, there are some misconceptions regarding pain in the elderly. Uh, many people expect pain as part of aging, and I think this is true. I think as we age, we, we have more aches and pains, and, and a lot of us do expect that. However, it doesn't mean that it can't be treated. Elderly people do, don't necessarily want to be viewed as a burden to family members, as a burden to physicians, uh, the healthcare system. And so even though it's out there, we can actually treat pain in this patient population and hopefully be effective at doing it. Estimated that 25 to 40 percent of elderly people with cancer experience pain daily, and that's been out there in the literature. Uh, part of that, though, keep in mind is uh, when they experience the pain, is it tolerable pain or is this type of pain that is, is causing uh, uh, problems with things like activities of daily living. Patients greater than 85 years of age are less likely to receive quote-unquote strong opioids compared to those who are 65 to 74 years of age. Could be many reasons for that. It could be reluctance to give uh, older people 
opioid medications in, in part because of other conditions they may have. Could be the fact that they're, they are older and so you, you kind of worry about giving them a medication that you don't know how well they're going to do with it, what their uh, pharmacokinetic profile is like and other medications that could interact with it. And it could be they just don't want to take it. That's the other option that's out there. It's also noted that those with cognitive decline are less likely to receive opioids and this may be in part because of the fact it's not recognized or that it's difficult to assess pain in this particular patient population. But nonetheless, those with cognitive decline can certainly have pain, uh, and opioids have been used successfully to, to uh, manage the pain in those patients. Things to remember, severity of the pain. This is a, a tried and true thing. It's not necessarily limited to the geriatric patient population. Clearly, if you have pain, a sprained ankle, for example, that's more mild pain. We're not going to use an opioid to treat that. But nonetheless, if it's uh, moderate to severe pain, uh, that certainly would entertain the idea of using an opioid. Barriers to successful pain management are out there. I think a lot of us can run into these. There, there's numerous ones. It could be the healthcare system itself. It could be legal aspects of it. It could be uh, patient barriers. It could be family barriers. There's lots of different ones out there. Appropriate use of analgesics. This part is in here mainly looking at, are you using the route of administration? That, that's correct for that patient. Our general philosophy is if somebody can swallow a pill, we tend to prefer using the oral route of medication administration. The dosing, which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, as we will the management of adverse effects. And then education. And education about pain management and how to use medication successfully, certainly the patients fit into that. Families also, uh, caregivers, whoever else, it could be other healthcare individuals, particularly when it comes to uh, using opioids. And the thing with education is that we, we can educate people, but we need to make sure they understand what we are telling them and what the next steps should be uh, if they have questions, how to get in touch with you or uh, someone to answer those questions. This comes from the American Geriatric Society. It came out in 2009. And this is uh, recommendations on what they have for selecting opioids for geriatrics. The first one, they mentioned that all patients with moderate to severe pain or pain related to functional impairment or diminished quality of life due to pain should be considered for opioid therapy. doesn't mean you have to, but at least entertain the idea of giving opioids uh, in those with severe pain. Patients with frequent or continuous pain on a daily basis may be treated with around-the-clock, time-contingent dosing aimed at achieving steady-state opioid therapy. The key thing with that phrase is that if you have chronic pain, you need to give something chronically to help manage that pain. So it doesn't make any sense for somebody who has chronic pain to give them medication twice a day if it doesn't last 12 hours. Third, clinicians should anticipate, assess, and identify potential opioid-associated adverse effects, and that clearly is a, a true statement, which we will address a little bit later on. They also mentioned that when long-acting opioid preparations are prescribed, you need something for breakthrough pain. Uh, and that uh, type of pain, for example, if somebody's having a dressing change, if they're having uh, physical therapy at a certain time, the long-acting opioid medications are used as sort of a basal uh, pain medication. But when you're doing something that can be increasing the amount of pain the patient's having, having something available sh short-acting to help deal with those situations is certainly advocated. The next statement I completely agree with, only clinicians, clinicians well-versed in the use and risks of methadone should initiate it, and when they uh, titrate it, it should be done so cautiously. We have a slide separately about methadone that 
uh, I'll talk about, but it's a very tricky medication to work with. And if you're not used to working with methadone, you need to learn how to work with it before you start writing for it. And then finally, it's a very general statement that patients taking opioid analgesics should be assessed for ongoing attainment of therapeutic goals, whatever those are defined as, adverse effects, and of course, safe and responsible medication use. So which opioids are fine to use in the elderly and which ones are not ideal to use in the elderly? This is a question that comes to me a fair amount when residents come up and say, well, what do I do? What do I, what do I give this particular individual? So the question really, is there an ideal opioid? for the elderly population? The answer to that is yes and no. It's not black and white. As a matter of fact, there's a variety of opioids that are out there. I think many of us know that. And, and opioids can vary with regard to potency and adverse effects. Realize also that normal changes within the body, uh, comorbid conditions, uh, drug interactions, there are opioids that are known for having drug interactions compared to others. Those are all examples of, of what may help someone dictate which opioid to use over another one. And then also, keep in mind, not all individuals respond the same way to opioids. This is true for, for many pain medications or, or medications in general. Generalized aches and pains, I, I would ask if, if people would state what they usually take for, for generalized aches and pains. Not everyone's going to say the same answer. Some go with acetaminophen, some go with ibuprofen, naproxen. But the fact is, is that not every single person will respond the same way to an opioid. And you have to understand that and know, expect that uh, to a certain extent and be able to adjust as needed. Interestingly enough, age is not the predominant factor uh, because we see this not only in older people, but we also see it in younger individuals too. Data on use of opioids in the elderly is lacking. I think that's uh, true for other medication classes as well, but most of the recommendations for opioids are from disease-specific studies, for example, in the field of oncology. Uh, they come from expert opinion or simple extrapolation from younger populations. Selecting opioids for geriatrics, I, pharmacists tend to throw in slides on pharmacokinetics. Fortunately, I only have two. And the basic pharmacokinetic parameters are listed there with absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. We don't tend to worry too much about absorption with opioids. Distribution it can have some impact, but not a great deal. Metabolism, not so much. Elimination is the big key factor, and we'll talk about that in the next slide, but elimination of opioids is uh, one of the most important pharmacokinetic aspects. Then, of course, you have pharmacodynamics. The elderly themselves may be more sensitive to the effects of, of any medication, really, and if you look at geriatrics and you think about the, the Beers criteria, uh, medications that have anticholinergic adverse effects, uh, medications like benzodiazepines, they could be more sensitive to long-acting medications. Any medication that affects the CNS, certainly the elderly may be more susceptible to or more sensitive to those effects. Now, historically, the liver, which is the, the biggest organ system with the cytochrome P450 isoenzyme system that does the metabolism of medications that are metabolized, the liver historically was viewed as the most important pharmacokinetic aspect uh, when it came to using opioids. And that's not the case anymore. Uh, renal function is much more important. You can have metabolites of opioids that accumulate, and that then can lead to either greater potency or accumulation can lead to adverse effects. Higher likelihood of renal function decline in the elderly population, and, and this is, of all the kinetic aspects that we know about when it comes to aging and effects on pharmacokinetics. Decline in renal function is probably the most robust data that we have out there. 
So even those with normal serum creatinine, an 85-year-old with a creatinine of 1.4 does not have the same renal function as, say, a 45-year-old with creatinine of 1.4. So just realize that, that renal function is very, very important when it comes to opioids, uh, and there are some exceptions to that, which we will talk about. So selecting opioids for geriatrics, uh, combination products, there are three predominant ones that are out there that we use, hydrocodone-containing, oxycodone-containing, and then codeine-containing. Uh, the key concept is that these are combinations. So don't focus solely on the opioid that you forget about the non-opioid component. The most common non-opioid used in combination products is acetaminophen. And you have to watch the dose of the acetaminophen. And, and this is being reduced in prescription products. The FDA has stepped in, and what they're doing is they're transitioning the amount of acetaminophen and limiting it to 325 milligrams uh, per tablet on prescription products. It likely will transition out to the over-the-counter products. It just has not gone there yet. But acetaminophen is the number one drug cause for overdose, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally. And a great example of that for geriatric patients is in nursing home settings where you have a perhaps a Tylenol order scheduled for osteoarthritis, and then you have a PRN uh, acetaminophen order for pain and fever. Perhaps you have a combination of a hydrocodone-containing one for pain as well. And you can see that there's potential for going beyond the uh, uh, maximum daily limit of acetaminophen. So it's a very important point to keep in mind. So these are the two that I prefer, uh, hydrocodone-containing and oxycodone-containing. I will tell you why here in just a bit, but the codeine-containing ones, uh, they're out there and they are used, but uh, codeine has some, some limitations to it that the other two do not, which we will discuss. First up, though, is hydrocodone. This is the most often uh, combined with acetaminophen. There is a product out there that combines it with ibuprofen. Hydrocodone-containing medications are the most widely prescribed drugs in the United States, and, and by far. There are over 120 million scripts a year written for hydrocodone-based medications. Number two is a, a distant second. It, it's back in the 60 to 70 million scripts per year. So clearly, hydrocodone is available and it, it's, it's widely, widely used. It is a useful agent for acute pain. It's a useful agent for breakthrough pain. Can it be used for chronic pain? Yes, it can. The, the catch with it is that it's a not a long-acting product, and so it does require three to four times daily dosing, and some people like that, but we have other medications that we'd like to try, uh, but nonetheless, we, we tend to use the, the hydrocodone for short-term courses uh, or using them for uh, some sort of breakthrough uh, pain. Overall, though, it's considered to be a weak mu agonist. Do not be confused with that statement in assuming that it's a weak opioid. Uh, it undergoes demethylation into hydromorphone, but nonetheless, it's a very effective made agent. Uh, arguably, hydrocodone at 5 milligrams is roughly equivalent to uh, morphine, oral morphine at 5 milligrams. So it's a very uh, useful opioid, and I think part of the reason it's used so much is it's a C3 at this point in time. Oxycodone is often combined with acetaminophen. Again, there are products out there that do combine it with aspirin. But oxycodone itself is uh, more cumbersome to use, uh, even in combination. Uh, it's listed right now as a C2, and so therefore you cannot give refills on this particular medication. You cannot call it in, uh, verbal, give verbal orders for the medication, unlike what you can do with hydrocodone, both giving refills and calling it in. But there is a false assumption. Uh, do not assume that just because oxycodone is a C2, it is more potent than something like hydrocodone. 
because you have to consider the dosages that you're looking at. If you give hydrocodone 10 milligrams compared to oxycodone 5 milligrams, they're pretty close to each other. And again, looking at patients and how, how they respond to medications and knowing that uh, some people respond better to oxy, some people respond better to hydrocodone. So do not assume that just because it is a C2 that it makes it that much more potent. Codeine, as I mentioned, not a huge fan of codeine, in part because the codeine gets its effect through metabolism into morphine. Uh, roughly 10% of codeine becomes morphine, and that's where it gets its, its bang. So you figure you take uh, Tylenol number 3, which has 30 milligrams of codeine in it. Uh, with biotransformation of that, it's about like giving 3 milligrams of oral morphine. Now the catch with doing that, though, is that the patient has to be able to metabolize it. And codeine goes through the cytochrome P450 2D6 enzyme system, and that one has been known to have uh, genetic predispositions where about 10% of the population are known as poor metabolizers. So if they're a poor metabolizer, then they cannot process the codeine into uh, becoming morphine. You also have to think about drug interactions that can inhibit the uh, cytochrome P450 2D6 uh, system. Uh, fluoxetine or Prozac is known to inhibit that system. So if you have a drug on board that inhibits the metabolism, you get the same uh, lack of benefit that you would if you had a poor metabolizer. And then for some reason, codeine, on average, tends to have more GI adverse effects. Now, granted, any opioid can have GI adverse effects, but codeine seems to be more likely the one associated with abdominal pain, uh, with constipation, than what you find with some of the other agents that are out there. So yes, it's an option. It's a, a C3, so the access to it is uh, similar to what you find with uh, hydrocodone-based ones, but codeine-containing products are, are usually not used that often. Looking at opioids for geriatrics, looking at the pure agonists, what pure agonists mean is that they uh, basically do not have a ceiling effect. They're often limited by adverse effects as, as the uh, dose-limiting factor. But the pure agonists are listed here. Uh, the ones that I tend to like are listed in uh, the yellowish-gold type color. The only one I really don't like is mepiridine, and this is not an exhaustive list. I realize that there are other ones that are out there. Mepiridine for years and years and years has always been considered a, a drug that uh, is notorious for drug interactions. You have to think about the tyramine-containing foods and uh, the, the metabolites that can accumulate, especially those in renal function decline and, and seizure potential and that sort of thing. You'll also notice that codeine phosphate is not on this list. Uh, we talked about reasons why we don't tend to recommend codeine uh, with Tylenol and codeine, but nonetheless, codeine phosphate in and of itself, we don't recommend that much either. So of these medications that are listed here in, in the yellow, we'll talk about each one of them. Morphine, of course, is what many people consider the gold standard. Uh, part of that is the multiple dosage forms that are available. Part of that is the fact that people are familiar with the product. But you have to think about the metabolites of morphine, the M3G and the M6G metabolites. The morphine glucuronide metabolites, they, they can accumulate in renal function decline. So when you have somebody with bad kidneys and you give them morphine over and over again, they may be more confused. They may experience some things like orthostasis. Their constipation may be worse. So just keep in mind that, that the metabolites of morphine can accumulate in those with renal function decline. That being said, we use a lot of morphine. Hydromorphone, uh, also known as dilaudid, put down as a cleaner agent uh, in the context of renal function decline. Yes, it still has metabolites that can accumulate. Uh, hydromorphone is more potent than morphine on a milligram per milligram basis. 
Uh, and there's a new long-acting formulation available orally called Exalgo. How that will take off, I'm not quite sure. We haven't really used that much hydromorphone uh, in general, but uh, we had a drug called Paladone a number of years ago. And because of dose dumping when mixing Paladone, a uh, long-acting version of hydromorphone with alcohol, then you had a dumping of a dose and people had deaths associated with this, so that was pulled off the market. So Exalgo, the new one, how it's going to fit into things I think remains to be seen, but nonetheless there is one that is out there. Fentanyl, another one of the pure agonists, uh, always over the years has, has been associated with less GI adverse drug reactions. It's not free of them, but nonetheless it's thought to have less. Uh, it's a clean agent in renal function decline. As a matter of fact, this is one of two opioids that would be preferred in those with renal function decline, in part because it has dual elimination, so uh, you don't necessarily have accumulation of the drug. The TTS system, this is the transdermal system. I would argue that on the outpatient side, uh, you see this used a fair amount. Uh, on the inpatient side, we can use certainly injectable or sub-Q versions of fentanyl. But the TTS system is not really designed for initial therapy. For many years, we only had four strengths of it, and the starting strength of the, the fentanyl patches, which is 25 microgram per hour patches, and that was never intended to be an initial, initial drug dose for somebody who was opioid naive. Now we have the 12 microgram per hour patch, and sometimes people can start out on that, uh, but most of the time people think about fentanyl as a product for uh, those with, with more chronic pain. It's not meant for acute pain, not meant for fluctuating pain. Part of the reason with this is because the titration or the ability to titrate the transdermal system, uh, you're limited to titrations every two to three days. Now if you use injectable, absolutely it can be used for acute pain also can be used for fluctuating pain. So the injectable is a very useful agent, uh, but the transdermal system does have some limitations. Oxycodone, we, we briefly talked about this in combination with uh, acetaminophen mainly, but it's a semi-synthetic agent. Kinetics are favorable for the elderly population. Some prefer using oxycodone in the elderly population. It does have a long-acting formulation in oxycontin, uh, also has immediate release formulations, and so this one's been around for a while and certainly a useful medication. Then oxymorphone, this one's also known as Opana. Uh, it's a metabolite of oxycodone. It's more potent than oxycodone, but I have not really seen it take off yet, and I don't know if that uh, will become a player in the future. Uh, oxymorphone's been around for a while. It's not like the medication is new, but nonetheless, I think we see more of the oxycodone, fentanyl, and morphine than we do anything else. Methadone. This is the slide that is separate. It's an opioid agonist, of course, and then it also has... NMDA receptor antagonism. And, and what does that mean? Basically, it means that, at least theoretically, methadone can help treat neuropathic pain. And the neuropathic component is thought to go through the NMDA receptor. So by blocking that, at least on paper, and, and again, in theory, methadone is thought to be a better agent for managing uh, those with neuropathic pain. You can use other opioids for neuropathic pain. They're part of guidelines, and there are certainly options that are out there but methadone arguably is, is thought to be uh, the, the opioid that's going to be preferred for that type of situation. Now the downside of methadone, there are lots. Uh, it's tricky to work with. I mentioned you have to be experienced in how, knowing how to start the medication. You have to be experienced in knowing how to titrate the medication, when to expect benefits, when to know when to pull back, those sorts of things. It has a variable half-life, and what this means is that the duration or the half-life of the drug is short in the beginning, and then as the drug accumulates in the body, 
the half-life gets longer and longer. And so initially methadone may only last for three hours, but with repeated dosages, it can become an 8 to 12-hour medication. Uh, we consider it to be a basal medication. We never use methadone for breakthrough pain at all. Uh, and I'm talking about oral methadone. IV methadone, the other downside to IV methadone, in addition to some of these things, is the fact it's terribly expensive. Uh, but methadone is considered to be a basal medication, and you have to be an experienced uh, clinician to work with it. If you're not, please read up on it and work with those who are. It also has drug interactions. Uh, there are some drugs that are notorious for interacting with methadone. You have to keep those in mind. So when you see a, an exhaustive uh, medication profile, you have to keep in mind that methadone may have interactions with those drugs that might lead to increased levels of methadone. It's associated with QT prolongation, particularly in high dosages of it. Uh, but also, if you think about drug interactions, you can have uh, other medications that, that can interact or, or, excuse me, can cause Q QT prolongation, particularly some of the antipsychotics. So you have to be very careful when using methadone uh, and avoid use in those that are known to have problems with QT prolongation. And then conversions from other opioids. There are ratios that are out there for methadone conversions. And we'll talk a little bit later about equal analgesic tables. But the key thing is, is that the higher the dose of a morphine or morphine equivalent that somebody is on, then the ratio for methadone will change. If you ever get a patient, be very careful, if you ever get a patient that you convert from, say, morphine or oxycodone to methadone, and on day two or three they're pain-free, you're going to be in trouble. Because on day three, four, or five, that's when they're going to be sedated, they're going to have uh, potential problems for respiratory depression, so you have to be very careful when working with methadone. Miscellaneous agents, uh, tramadol or Altram, it, it's certainly been around for a number of years. It's a mixed agent, meaning it, it has effects as a, a weak mu agonist, but it also inhibits uptake of serotonin primarily and norepinephrine secondarily. The concerns that happen with this one is uh, seizure risk has always been out there, and so we have limitations on dosages and those who are predisposed or pre-existing uh, seizure disorders are not ideal candidates to receive uh, tramadol. And then the risk for serotonin syndrome, the reason that is there is because of the fact it does inhibit the uptake of serotonin. So this is why you're seeing uh, when you write a script for tramadol and somebody who's on an SSRI or a, a triptan, the, the screen will pop up for drug interactions and risks for serotonin syndrome. The only thing I will say about that is I think serotonin syndrome probably does happen but it's just being called something else rather than serotonin syndrome. So if we look for it, then there's potentially might identify it a little bit more. Dosage reduction in those who are over 75 years of age and those with uh, renal dysfunction defined as a creatinine clearance less than 30 mLs per minute. And normal dosages for tramadol is anywhere from 50 to 100 milligrams. Maximum daily dose of tramadol is 400 milligrams. So basically you're going to you knock that down roughly about half in those who are older. Uh, and again, it, if they have poor renal function, the drug may hang around longer, so you may not need to give it four times a day or three times a day. Buprenorphine is not a new drug. It's a partial opioid agonist. But there is a newer product out there called Butrans, which is a transdermal system of buprenorphine. And this one, again, is, is, is similar to fentanyl in a way in that it's, it's designed for those with chronic pain. It's a seven-day dosing interval, so people put it on a patch, and a week later, they take the patch off and put a different patch on, uh, not in the same spot, of course. But it's only those for, with chronic pain requiring continuous opioid analgesic, not for acute or fluctuating pain. What they're marketing this for is people who perhaps have osteoarthritis, 
that Tylenol is not controlling the osteoarthritis and they may not be a candidate to receive a non-steroidal. Limitations to the drug. It's not recommended for those requiring more than 80 milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day. So what this means, and one of the, the, the downsides to it being a partial opioid agonist, is that you do have ceiling effects with this medication. And the FDA limited it to uh, those on 80 milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day that you don't go above that with the butrans. A maximum dose on this is the, the, the 20 milligram patch. It also has limited dosing flexibility and perhaps the potential for them for QT prolongation as well. Uh, another downside to it, it has a slow onset of action. So steady state takes about three days to achieve or it could be a little bit longer. So it's not a drug that, that is designed at all for acute pain. It's more, again, for those with a chronic study type of pain. It is convenient because it's a patch and they only have to change it every seven days. Tependidol or Nucinta, this is when it first came out, a lot of people thought that this is sort of like being a first cousin to Tramadol because of the fact it has a similar mechanism in the, in the context, it has, it's a mu receptor agonist, but it's also a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Now, this is where it's different than tramadol because it has limited interactions with serotonin. So because of that, then, you're not going to see problems with serotonin syndrome pop up with this medication. This also, when it came out, it was a, listed as a C2, and tramadol is not a controlled substance. So everyone was kind of wondering why that was the case. Well, as it turns out, this is a very potent agent. Uh, the mu receptor agonistic effects, no active metabolites, and it has good affinity, strong affinity, to the mu receptor, and so it makes it a very potent agent compared to what tramadol's effects are on the mu receptor. Downside, seizure risk, yeah, certainly still a concern. Uh, they have a long-acting formulation of this product that's out there as well. Uh, but again, keep in mind it is a, a, a controlled two, uh, class two uh, substance, and so you have to go through the, the loopholes when writing scripts for this one as well. On the horizon, uh, standalone hydrocodone, potentially. Uh, not for sure if this will, will come to fruition, but it is in the works. Uh, there's a couple of, of companies that are leading the way with this. There's a Zohydro is one brand name that's been out there uh, as an extended release capsule, currently in, in phase three trials. A lot of different companies are working on a product and uh, likely the companies will have extended release products since we um, already have the lower tab on the markets now. But there is concern that exists and questions that remain we all know about the uh, abuse of uh, opioid medications, and hydrocodone is a highly sought-after medication for abuse, mainly because of, of access of getting it. But there are concerns out there on the development of these medications, and uh, any medication that's in phase three trials is more likely to make it to the market, but I'm always hesitant until it actually comes out as a, as a drug on the market. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it's out there. So selecting opioids for geriatrics and, and those with renal function decline. This comes from the Medical College of Wisconsin. And what they recommend is in people with chronic kidney disease, the best options, as I mentioned, fentanyl is one of the two drugs that are the best options for uh, people with renal function decline. The other one's methadone. But again, methadone is the drug that has some nuances when, when writing for it. So fentanyl arguably is the best one. It's one that we tend to go with if somebody has really poor renal function. Other options that are reasonable, hydromorphone and oxycodone. They're not as good as fentanyl or methadone, but nonetheless, they're, uh, they're options. And they don't recommend morphine, mepiridine, or codeine. I agree with mepiridine or codeine. Sometimes we can sneak by with morphine, but if you have somebody who has 
renal function decline, I would just ask that you be cognizant of potential adverse effects and uh, keep those in mind. But this is a recommendation on, on how you select an opioid based on fu uh, renal function decline. Dosing is always a question. Uh, how do you dose these agents? Well, ideally, calculating a starting dose, start low and go slow. Not unique to geriatric patient population. We do this with a lot of medications in geriatrics, and opioids are no different in that regard. An example could be hydrocodone, 2.5 to 5 milligrams, uh, and that's given typically three times a day, maybe four. Oral morphine, 2.5 to 5 milligrams would be a good starting dose in somebody. If you know they have a history of being sensitive to opioids and starting the lower end of that uh, would certainly make sense. The other question is, do you start with immediate release or do you start with sustained release? People go both ways on this. Uh, unclear which approach is the best. Immediate release allows you to give a trial of a medication to see how they respond to it, then also allows you to do adjustments to it, whereas sustained release avoids the peaks and the troughs that you're going to get from the immediate release. My preference is to start with immediate release just to see how they respond to it because you can always transition into a sustained release medication if it's chronic pain or if you want to give something that's going to last more than about uh, four to six hours. So the extended release products uh, in general, though, they may last longer in geriatric patient populations. Uh, you'll find that with both oxycodone sustained release and also with morphine sustained release tablets, they are listed as every 12-hour products. However, they may not last a full 12 hours. Uh, in some patients, they may be every eight hours. Uh, in geriatric patient populations, though, they, they tend to think that they can last a little bit longer. So if you only need to get by with once a day or twice a day dosing of extended release products, then uh, that, that's perfectly, a perfectly fine thing to do. The titration, this is always another question that comes up, and, and that is how frequently can you reassess somebody? And of course, there's individual variation of this. And, Part of it is based on the delivery system of the drug that you're using. So if you have an immediate release medication, titrate every 30 minutes to two hours depending on the route. So if it's an injectable product, let's say you're using injectable morphine, uh, if you give IV morphine, in, in theory, you can assess how they're doing in 10 to 15 minutes and you can give them more if they need more. If it's an oral medication, that will depend on if it's a liquid, such as uh, morphine sulfate has a immediate release liquids, uh, most common brand name of that is Roxanol. Oxycodone also has that. Liquids you can reassess in roughly about uh, 45 minutes or so. Oral tablets can be up to an hour. You can also reassess up to two hours depending again on the patient scenario and how likely they are to clear the medication. The sustained release products, uh, what we've done is we titrate them daily. So you give them, let's say, uh, sustained release morphine 15 milligrams twice a day, which is a starting dose and you can ask them the next day how they're feeling. If they're still having quite a bit of pain, then you may adjust that as needed. When we make adjustments in sustained release products, uh, we try to adjust the evening dose first and then make adjustments throughout the day. The time that we would adjust the daily dose first if, if, is if you notice throughout the day what's happening is that they're not able to perform activities of daily living as well. In that case, you want to adjust the morning dose. Uh, but the evening dose we tend to go to first because we want them to get a good night's sleep. And if they're having adverse effects, hopefully the, the medication will be worn off by the time that they uh, take another dose and they'll sleep through those adverse effects, uh, like nausea, for example. Transdermal products, again, depends on the product. The uh, buprenorphine is a, a more of a, a long-acting medication in the transdermal form. So reaching steady state in three days is going to take you a while to, to reassess that, the Every 48 to 72 hours, it's listed there. This is more for fentanyl. 
uh, you'll find in the labeling for the fentanyl transdermal patches that it should last 72 hours. There are instances when people just, they can't get a full 72 hours out of the dosing system. It may be the generic that they're using. It may be the fact it's just not lasting as long and they're clearing it faster. Uh, nonetheless, we have uh, used the patch every 48 hours, but generally speaking, between two to three days is when you make a change on that. Maximum dose. Well, arguably or technically, there isn't one for the pure agonist. What you'll find is that oftentimes it's going to be limited by the adverse effects that uh, people may be experiencing. I will tell you, though, that is there a true maximum dose? At, at some point, I, I think there is before you say, you know what, we're giving them a lot of opioid let's try rotating them to a different opioid and see if they do better on that. And what is meant by quote-unquote high dose? Uh, I think this is relative to what you're used to seeing. Uh, working in hospice, uh, seeing somebody on two, 300 milligrams of morphine is, is not unusual. Some uh, have suggested that doses above 200 milligrams of oral morphine or equivalent to that would be considered high doses of morphine. Uh, and the argument is that it may lead to more adverse effects and warrant an opioid rotation, which is a process where you, you take them off one opioid and rotate them onto another opioid. But nonetheless, people can get tolerance to a lot of the adverse effects, uh, and technically speaking, again, there is no uh, true ceiling uh, dose for a, a, a pure agonist. The equalgesic table, there's, there's a lot of tables that are out there, and uh, some general points about these things. The conversions are not complete. Never forget that, okay? It's, it's not an exact science when making conversions from one opioid to another. There's always going to be some variation, and dosage reductions are often recommended when converting from one opioid to another because it's not a complete conversion. It is fairly simple math, but you have to knock down the dose once you do the math. Conversions, I like to think of them as being more of an art than a science. Yes, they're, you end up guessing sometimes, uh, or at least getting an estimated uh, uh, new medication dose, but you have some science behind that, and that's what the equalanalgesic table will, will provide for you. But you need to know how to use them if they're going to be working with opioids. And the more you use them over and over again, you'll get a better feel uh, and, and can do a lot of the math in your head uh, as far as transferring from one opioid to another. Uh, one caveat, never convert methadone from one of these tables. If you ever see fixed doses of methadone in an equal analgesic table, don't ever use it. Because again, methadone has that ratio that will, that will vary depending on how much morphine or morphine equivalent that the patient is taking. There are a couple of online calculators that you're more than welcome to uh, tap into. And uh, they're just there for your convenience if you want to uh, get these. They also have uh, calculators available for handheld devices for uh, various different, depending on what your device is, you can probably go to the internet and find one that can be downloaded to carry with you. Uh, but again, just understand and realize that they are not exact and you still have to do some adjustments with the conversions. So assessment of pain in the elderly, if you start somebody on a medication, it can be challenging at times. You may have people with cognitive decline. You may have people that uh, are reluctant to state why they even have pain. Multiple factors involved, the family may be involved uh, in assessment issues, and, and sometimes you might ask the family to, to help assess how the, how the patient is doing. Other medical conditions can actually uh, factor into this, etc. But the best indicator to this day still remains the patient's own report. Now granted, if they have cognitive decline, they may not be able to tell you that, in which case you uh, observe them, and we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But if somebody sits there and tells you 
that they have pain that's 10 out of 10, and their blood pressure is not up, their heart rate is not up, and they're sitting perfectly still in front of you, that still is the best indicator of, their, of the pain, is 10 out of 10, because it's what they report it. We've always said that patients' uh, pain is what they say it is. Uh, so please keep that in mind. In end-stage dementia, as I mentioned, um, we tend to observe them. And uh, do they appear comfortable? Do they appear restless? Are they grimacing at all? Are the behaviors of dementia worsening? Uh, that in particular is an interesting one. And, and I, I know that you'll look for infections, for example, perhaps some metabolic abnormalities, medications that can cause dementia to be worsened. But please keep in mind and at least ask the question, is there any pain? Uh, because again, as people age, yes, you can have more pain. You can have arthritic pain or various different types of things. Uh, and if they can't tell you that and you don't adequately treat that, then that can then worsen uh, behaviors in dementia. Are they having any adverse effects uh, from the medications? Uh, and again, constipation. If you have somebody who's constipated, but yet they can't tell you that they are constipated and their abdomen hurts, you may perceive that as perhaps uh, worsening dementia or increased pain and then uh, end up treating that inappropriately uh, in the wrong way. So assessment of pain in end-stage dementia is a challenging thing. Certainly encouraging uh, nursing home advice as well would be a useful tool to have. Outcomes to consider. Progress toward therapeutic goals, whatever those predefined goals are. It's a very important thing to, to, uh, to see how you're doing. Presence uh, of opioid adverse effects. Some of these we actually try to prevent. Uh, changes in underlying pain condition. Uh, changes in, in, in psychiatric or medical comorbidities. Uh, identification of, of potential behaviors that are suggestive of uh, diversion or addiction. Uh, those are all things that at least need to be kept in mind. Mainly that last one is for uh, the younger uh, uh, patient population. Okay, so first case we have here is one of an 85-year-old male who was admitted to our hospice service with a diagnosis of stage 4 lung cancer, past medical history of, uh, of COPD and, and, and coronary artery disease. Current medications is so morphine sulfate, 5 to 10 milligrams every 30 minutes PRN, and we typically are going to move that back to 45 to 60 minutes, but he entered the hospice program uh, taking it every 30 minutes PRN. Albuterol, uh, dexamethasone twice a day, lorazepam, acetaminophen, and uh, a few other medications that are not really relevant. Rating his pain, it's a 10 out of 10. And the pain is actually in his hip. The pain is there because he had hip surgery many years ago. He's always had this pain with him, but he's rating it as a 10 out of 10. And when asked about it, he just smiles and laughs with his answer. And he's reluctant to take his medications for the pain. He has morphine available, but he's reluctant to take it. So really the question you have to ask is, well, what do you want to do about the pain? And what we did is, this is, this is one of those things where you need to get more information. So perhaps ask him why he's reluctant to use the pain medication. Uh, education, is it a fear of the medications that are out there? Is there something else we could try? Uh, is there a lack of understanding about the medication? This would be a great example of when you would involve other members of the healthcare team. Uh, spiritual care uh, is one that's out there. Uh, certainly social workers would be out there. Anybody who may have had similar experiences or patients that had similar uh, reactions to, uh, to not taking medications. And perhaps trying to compromise with the patient. Try half the dose or just try a little bit. Or uh, we can change to a different medication. But ultimately, it's a patient's decision. And if they sit there and they say, I have pain 10 out of 10, that's where I want it, I'm going to stick with it, that's their choice. 
But offering them options, I think, is, is something at least that we can do. The concerns that uh, this is big. Health literacy, even in the state of Iowa, which is looked upon as being a, a, an educated state, health literacy rates in adults over age 65, that's one group that's been identified as uh, more likely to have limited health literacy. So this is a big, a big area in part because we do focus on education of patients. But what we are telling them and what they are hearing is not always the same. So there are multiple approaches, and, and this is a whole other talk on health literacy. If you've not heard a talk on health literacy, I encourage you to do so. Multiple approaches used to help improve this. One of them is the teach-back method, and, and this is not the same as repeat-back. So when you tell somebody something, the, the teach-back method is to have the recipient explain in their own words what you said. That's not the same as tell me what I told you, because when they do the, the teach-back method, then you can get a feel for what they actually are, are understanding. And this is another reason why you don't want to use complex medication regimens, uh, because the more complex you make the medication regimen, the more challenging it is for people, particularly those with low health literacy, uh, to abide by that and to know how to use the medications appropriately. Fears of opioids, these are out there. They're not new by any means. Uh, they've been out there for quite some time. One of the main fears that people have is the fear of addiction. And uh, they don't want to be hooked on a medication. Now, if you've noticed throughout this whole talk, I've called these things opioids. I've not called them narcotics once. The reason I do not use that phrase is because narcotics, I think of as having a, a bad taste to them. There's narcotic squads for in the police department. But if you call a drug what it is, in this case, an opioid is an opioid. Uh, or you can call them opiates. But the fear of addiction from taking something like an opioid is out there. And, and people just do not, want to, do not want to be hooked on them. Diversion certainly uh, is uh, another concern. And it may not necessarily be the patient, uh, especially in geriatric patient population, which is not thought to be a big deal. Uh, but nonetheless, they may have relatives that uh, know they have some uh, morphine or oxycodone in, 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 the, uh, in the kitchen, and there may be a diversion that's, uh, that's detected. Adverse effects of the opioids is a big fear, uh, and we'll talk more about those in, in particular a little bit later. The elderly are also more sensitive to the effects of the opioids. Uh, what this is getting at, again, is that you have central acting agents, uh, and op elderly people can be more sensitive to the effects of many medications, and opioids are uh, uh, certainly one of those, and so people may be fearful in, in, in prescribing opioids because of that. Legal ramifications that are out there. That sort of ties into who is watching me. What that is getting at is uh, boards of medicine, for example, boards of nursing, that sort of thing. If a physician or a nurse practitioner or a PA, if, if they're practicing within their scope of practice, then less likely they're going to have some uh, uh, people knocking on the doors asking them why they're writing so many opioids. Uh, but, for example, if you have a, an oncologist who writes for a lot of opioids, Pharmacists are used to seeing that from that particular discipline. Uh, if a pharmacist sees somebody writing a lot of opioids and their scope of practice is predominantly pediatrics, then that's going to raise some eyebrows. So you have to think about uh, scope of practice and, and who is watching me, uh, a lot of the legal ramifications uh, that, that tie into it. Reducing abuse, obviously this is something that we'd like to see, uh, not necessarily in the geriatric population because as I mentioned, 
they have a very low risk of, of abuse or misuse. It, it still is recommended to provide universal precautions, uh, and that's the, the, the traditional approach that is listed as being a prudent approach. But nonetheless, in geriatric patients, we don't tend to worry so much about uh, abuse of the medications. This patient population, if anything, are more likely than, than other patient populations to, to take themselves off of an opioid. Uh, but that's where education kind of fits in. If they need the medication, knowing it's available for them, uh, that's, uh, that's an advantage. But a lot of the abuse you'll, you'll see in uh, younger patient populations, substance abuse uh, mixed in with legal medications as well as illegal medications, uh, certainly opioids are, are, are part of that. As a matter of fact, the FDA has come out with the, the REMS, which is the Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. Uh, and it's an initiative by the FDA looking at long-acting and extended-release opioids. And the goal with this is to help reduce abuse, to help reduce misuse, addiction, and overdose deaths. They're, they're seeing overdose deaths that are oftentimes uh, unintentional. But nonetheless, if you mix uh, an opioid with something like alcohol, that can uh, predispose people or at least to be an additive effect to overdoses. So the REMS strategies they have out there, they're not just for opioids, they also have them for other medication classes. But the intent is to provide for medication guides for patients, uh, education uh, things for both prescribers and patients on how to use these medications safely, uh, timetable for assessments, and of course what everyone loves, metrics. Numerous critiques to the initiative. I can't say I'm a proponent of it. I can't say I'm against it. It's one of those things that it's out there, and we just have to deal with it. Second case is one of an 82-year-old female. She came into our inpatient service, uh, the family medicine service, uh, admitted to the hospital from a nursing home because of abdominal pain with nausea and vomiting. Uh, surgical history, she had skin grafting secondary to lower extremity burns, uh, as well as knee replacement. Past medical history listed there on the right. Uh, as you can tell, she has a lot of different uh, chronic medical problems, and including chronic low back pain, but uh, uh, nonetheless, that's her list that you can look through. Medications on admission from the nursing home. She's on gabapentin 300 milligrams three times a day, morphine SR 60 milligrams three times a day, uh, MSAR, which is a morphine sulfate immediate release, taking 15 milligrams every four hours PRN, docusate and Senna PRN, uh, acetaminophen as needed for pain and fever, and then she's also on alendronate, estrogen, levothyroxine, uh, and a few other medications which are not pertinent to the case. So she comes in diagnosed with a pneumonia, and uh, current medications were continued from the nursing home. What happened is that uh, on day two, she started developing these mental status changes and was somnolent. So she was given naloxone, and she responded to this. But the etiology at the time was unclear uh, why she became somnolent, uh, because all we had done is just continued medications from the nursing home. Uh, so since she had responded to the naloxone, we thought, well, it's got to at least be the, the morphine. So what we did is we reduced the dose from 60 milligrams TID to 30 milligrams TID and then discharged her back to the nursing home on day four. Two days after that, patient came back, readmitted with somnolence again and being, quote-unquote, out of it, according to nursing home staff. And she was sent back to the hospital with a working diagnosis again of that pneumonia. And for some reason, I don't know how, but she developed the UTI despite the antibiotics that she went home on. Second hospital course, we held the morphine. Subsequently, she had mental status clearing. 
and then was discharged on day two with improved breathing and back to the nursing home on antibiotics. She was never intubated or anything along those lines, but uh, nonetheless sent back to the nursing home. So in this case, what do you want to do with the opioids? Well, what we did, this is a great example of why medication reconciliation is important. Because the history with this particular individual is she had had the skin grafting done about nine months prior to the admission to the hospital for the pneumonia. And so that medication of uh, sustained release morphine, 60 milligrams three times a day, was nine months earlier and she had been tapered off of morphine. So when she came into the hospital, she's put on the medication uh, probably based on uh, the fact that we never went back and uh, verified with the nursing home what she was actually uh, getting at the home uh, and it's from a previous admission. And so that's what led to the problems the first time and even though we cut back on the dose, we led to the second admission because of the fact she was not supposed to be on morphine. So clearly you have to keep in mind the medication reconciliation even though it's somewhat of a painful process it does have some, some advantages and uh, utilities, so please keep that in mind as well. So opioid adverse effects. Well, I mentioned they're out there, and the first one is, is probably the most important one that you're going to run into, and that deals with the gastrointestinal tract. Constipation. This is one with opioids that uh, people, you have to anticipate this and you have to prevent it, because this is one they do not develop tolerance to. Opioids can cause decreased peristalsis, they can reduce intestinal secretions, they can cause increased resorption of fluids, and as a matter of fact, it's often compounded by other medications in disease states. Uh, many times you'll see people on medications that, that have constipation as an adverse effect. Uh, disease states, perhaps people, uh, elderly people, they may not be moving their bowels as well anyway. Maybe it's due to poor oral intake, uh, low fluid intake. Uh, so when you throw a drug in that's known to cause constipation, you have to anticipate that and you have to prevent that. And we'll talk about how here in just a bit. Nausea and vomiting. This is a transient uh, adverse effect. It, I mean, it might go away in about two to three days, maybe a week or so. That being said, there are some people that just cannot handle it. And that's where you might try a different opioid. Or you might try to give them a medication to help offset the nausea and vomiting. But nonetheless, that is a transient adverse effect uh, that hopefully uh, goes away. But if it doesn't, we rotate them to a different opioid. CNS, very important as well. Sedation, uh, motor function, and falls. Those are things that can happen as well. Now, now keep in mind, though, if you put somebody uh, on a pain medication, and uh, it could be a, a, an opioid, uh, for example, but if they have been in pain for a long period of time, that has affected their sleep, and now you're adequately treating their pain, they're going to sleep because they're going to be catching up on sleep that they have lost. So yes, they can cause sedation and sleep is very, very important because if you cannot get somebody a good night's sleep, then the likelihood of getting on top of the pain is very challenging. But sedation, motor function, uh, falls, potential for falls, all are concerns that can happen with uh, opioids, uh, particularly in the elderly population. Confusion and delirium. Caution in those with underlying cognitive decline, and, and this is true uh, with those with dementia, for example. Uh, best to avoid opioids with active metabolites because those metabolites can accumulate and then lead to more confusion. Uh, that being said, we have successfully used opioids in people who have dementia. Um, but you have to be very careful and at least uh, keep reassessing 
uh, how the patient is responding to the medication that is used, but they certainly can cause confusion and delirium. Pruritus and sweating, not a common adverse effect, but it can be distressing to the patient, uh, and so just keep that in mind. Urinary retention, this is something that you certainly can see uh, with opioid use, particularly in the elderly population, so uh, be aware of that, anticipate that. Uh, also be aware of the fact that they may already have some uh, underlying bladder difficulties. Suppressed production of hypothalamic, pituitary, gonadal, and adrenal hormones. Most noted in this is testosterone deficiencies in men. This tends to happen in people receiving long-term opioid therapy. Uh, it's an adverse effect that, that we don't necessarily look for, but it has uh, been noted to, uh, to happen, and, and please be aware of that. Probably the big one is respiratory depression. If you look at people who are uh, on opioids or started on opioids, a lot of healthcare people, this is the one they're concerned about, is the respiratory depression. Is it common? No, it's not that common. Does it happen? Absolutely. But it's rare in opioid naive patients when you start with a dose that's low enough and appropriately titrate them. Often it's a result of a therapeutic mistake when you see this happening. And the, the typical sequence that happens is people become somnolent and they get sedated, then you start worrying about respiratory depression. If somebody is wide awake, if they're still telling you they're in pain, it's not an immediate thing where in the next minute they're going to have respiratory depression. So yes, it is a serious adverse effect. It does happen. I've seen it happen. And we have to address it when it does happen. Uh, but nonetheless, if opioids are used in effective dosages or appropriate dosages, an assessment is done and you titrate them accordingly, it's not likely going to be a common adverse effect at all. So I always tell people to uh, treat the opioids with respect. They're very effective agents, but this particular adverse effect is definitely one that uh, people are aware of. So management strategies out there for the adverse effects. Well, in part it depends on the severity of the adverse effect. If, for example, somebody has nausea, but it's not that bothersome to them, it's just more of a nuisance type of thing, then let's give it time and see if they can write it out. Constipation, this is a little bit different. Uh, again, prevention is the key. We tend to use stimulant laxatives as the preferred first-line option. Stimulant laxatives would include things like uh, uh, senna-based products. We tend to use uh, a little bit of docusate in there with the senna. You could feasibly use something like a Miralax-based product. Docusate sodium in and of itself typically is not strong enough to help offset the constipating effects of opioids. Uh, rarely have I seen somebody who did not require anything. I think there's maybe two or three patients in the last 15 years of working with hospice and palliative medicine that somebody did not need to receive something for constipation. So generally speaking, when you write an opioid medication, you also should write for uh, something to prevent uh, constipation, and uh, Senna S is an example of something, taking it twice a day. Others, symptomatic management with medications. Uh, yes, we can treat something like nausea with uh, maybe metoclopramide, although it's not an ideal agent to use in the elderly, but uh, something to, to, to help stimulate GI peristalsis, or if they're sedated, assuming that you want them to uh, to be awake for a conversation. We have used stimulants in the past, but again, we try not to uh, adjust the dose of the opioid uh, just to help minimize an adverse effect uh, unless we absolutely have to. But nonetheless, the adverse effects are out there. Rotating to a different opioid is another option. 
this is done. It, there's not a whole lot of literature on how to do this or support for doing this, but what you'll find is that people over time, they do okay on an opioid, and then after a while, they just they don't do as well. Uh, the, the issue of opioid tolerance or uh, drug tolerance. So if you rotate them over to a different opioid, then you might have a benefit from a pain standpoint. Same thing holds true with adverse effects. If they have nausea that's so bad or if they have uh, something like uh, itching that is just terribly bad, rotating them over to a different opioid may minimize those adverse effects. And then education to patients uh, on, on how to uh, deal with adverse effects. Hyperalgesia is a whole separate issue. This is an adverse effect to an opioid. And another way of looking at uh, hyperalgesia is uh, opioid-induced neurotoxicity. Uh, this is the one you've heard about, perhaps, myoclonus due to opioids. Myoclonus is the hallmark symptom of hyperalgesia, most likely in opioids with active metabolites. So that would include things like morphine, uh, dehydration of a patient, infection, other CNS medications, these also may add to development of the opioid-induced neurotoxicity. Lots of theories out there for why this develops, uh, oxidative stress, apoptosis, etc. No one really knows. But the key thing with understanding hyperalgesia is that it may be interpreted as increasing pain. May include delirium, agitation, and restlessness. And, and I've seen this happen, and this is a particular adverse effect that if you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. We've seen people that, that just get restless, they get a little agitated, and this easily can be interpreted as more pain. So when you add more opioid to it, you're actually funneling into uh, the opioid-induced neurotoxicity. So what tends to happen is that you need to reduce the dose of the opioid and then perhaps rotate them over to a different opioid. I think the same thing can be said about constipation, even though it was on the previous slide. If somebody's complaining of abdominal pain, or if somebody's complaining of a lot of nausea, your first question should be, when was your last bowel movement? Because certainly, if you have abdominal pain and they're full of stool and you increase the opioid to treat the pain, you're going to add fuel to the fire again. So hyperalgesia is the same way. Again, something that you have to look for uh, if you're going to find it. But it is out there as well. Oh, the only thing I want to say about this is that it tends to be on accumulation of medications or on higher dosages of medications. Uh, so just be aware of that. The best guide out there, uh, working with opioids, as I said earlier, is more of an art with some science behind it. And uh, the more experience you get in working with opioids, uh, I think that the, the better off you will be. Use your clinical experience in combination with the evidence. Uh, if you need to seek help, ask uh, people who are used to working with opioids on a daily basis. Uh, they are more than happy to help you with uh, uh, any questions that you may have or what the next best steps are. One thing to keep in mind, if one doesn't work, try another one. If that one doesn't work, try another one. Uh, we've always done that approach, and it's particularly true with opioids like it is with non-steroidals. Do not forget the other types of pain. Do not become so fixated on the physiologic types of pain that you neglect the social types of pain or the spiritual pain or emotional types of pain. Uh, make sure you involve other members of the healthcare team, as I've mentioned a couple of times now, but do not forget about other types of pain. Opioids cannot treat uh, all types of pain. Uh, they're mainly focusing on the nociceptive. Take-home points. Uh, oftentimes, communication is the biggest barrier to successful pain management. Communication is the biggest barrier to lots of challenges in healthcare. But communication is a two-way street. So communication involves listening. 
understanding where patients are coming from. So if you listen to what the barriers are with the patients, if you, if you listen to adverse effects they may be having, uh, working with the patients, making them part of the team or the family, that's oftentimes one of the biggest uh, uh, successful things you can do. Part of the communication involves education, again, on both sides. So you educate the patient, the patient educates you. So if you say this works and the patient says it doesn't work, the patient's not going to take the medication. So education about what to expect from opioids, when to expect it, when follow-up should be, understanding the medications that are being used, addressing any fears or concerns that, that patients or family members may have with the opioids uh, is, is certainly part of an overall pain management scheme. So in conclusion, treat the patient. Identify etiology of the pain if possible. We talked about that. If it's a chronic pain uh, type situation, schedule the medication. Do not just give PRM medications for chronic pain because uh, if it's chronic, it's chronic. They should get chronic pain medications. The oral route is the preferred route if they can swallow. If they can't swallow, then I think you look back at other options that are out there, either transdermal or, uh, you know, if they're getting toward end stage of life and uh, you're thinking more subcutaneous infusions and more invasive routes, um, that's the other options uh, that are out there. Uh, different options exist as far as the opioid selection. You have to weigh the risks versus the benefits of using them. And again, if something fails, try something else. So with that, that is the uh, end of the talk on, on opioids. And... Um, uh, thank you for your attention.